Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 6 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Joanna of Navarre, Chapter 2, Part 2. In the first years of her widowhood, Queen Joanna received every mark of attention and respect from the new king, Henry V, who was anxious to avail himself of her good offices with her son, the Duke of Bretagne, in order to secure the alliance of that prince in his projected wars with France. Henry V, in his letters and treaties, always styles the Duke of Bretagne his dearest brother, and the duke reciprocates the title when addressing him. Joanna certainly exerted her influence with her son in order to induce him to enter into amicable arrangements with England. According to some historians, Joanna was entrusted by her royal stepson with a share in the government when he undertook his expedition against France. Speed, Stowe, Hall, and Goodwin, and even that most industrious antiquary, White Kennet, affirmed that she was made queen regent, at the same time that John, Duke of Bedford, was appointed protector and lord lieutenant of England. And this assertion is strengthened in Trussell's text, who uses these words. Henry appointed his mother-in-law, Joan de Navarre, a woman of great prudence and judgment in national affairs, to be regent in his absence, with the advice of the Privy Council. But, notwithstanding these important authorities, there is no documentary evidence proving that such was the fact. She was, however, treated with higher consideration than was ever shown to a queen dowager of this country, who was not also queen mother, and appears to have enjoyed the favor and confidence of the king in no slight degree. The same day that Henry quitted his metropolis, June 18th, after having been in solemn procession to St. Paul's, with the Lord Mayor and Corporation of the City of London, to offer his prayers and oblations for the success of his expeditions. He returned to Westminster, for the purpose of taking a personal leave of Queen Joanna. This circumstance is commemorated in a curious poem of the time. To Paulus then he held his way, with all his lords, sooth to say, the mayor was ready, and met him there, with the crafts of London in good array. Hail, comely king, the mayor gainsay. The grace of God now be with thee, and speed thee well in thy journey, and grant thee ever more degree. Amen, quoteth all the commonality. To St. Paul's then he held his way, and offered there full worthily, from thence to the queen the selfsame day, and took his leave full reverently. This farewell visit to Joanna was the last thing Henry V did previously to leaving his capital. Their perfect amity at that time may be inferred from Henry's gracious license to the royal widow, whom he styles his dearest mother, Joanna, Queen of England, 
to reside with her retinue in any of his royal castles of Windsor, Wallingford, Berkhamsted, and Hertford, as of old, during his absence in foreign parts. This order is dated Winchester, June 30th, 1414. There are also various gifts and concessions granted by Henry V to Queen Joanna, on the rolls of the third, fourth, and fifth years of his reign. Her eldest son, the Duke of Bretagne, either from caution or because he was unable to take a decided part in the great political contest between England and France, maintained a strict neutrality. But Arthur, her second son, boldly espousing the cause of France, was the first who attacked the outguards of Henry's camp, near Agincourt, at the head of 2,000 French cavalry. This fiery assault, his first essay in arms, was made at midnight, on the eve of St. Crispin's Day, in the midst of a tempest of wind and rain. Arthur was repulsed by the troops of his royal stepbrother, and was desperately wounded, and made prisoner in the battle the following day. The chronicler, from whom White Kennet has collated the reigns of the three Lancastrian sovereigns, records the capture of Arthur in these words. The son of the late Duke of Bretagne, by the Queen Regent of England, was taken prisoner. The same author again mentions Joanna of Navarre by this title, when he says, King Henry dispatched a messenger over to England, to the Queen Regent, with the news of his victory, which filled the nation with universal joy. Te Deum was sung in all the churches, and a mighty procession, consisting of the queen, prelates, and nobility, with the mayor and corporation of the city of London, walked from St. Paul's to Westminster, on the following day, to return public thanks to Almighty God. The Chronicle of London also states that Queen Joanne, with her lords, attended by the mayor, aldermen, and several of the livery companies of London, walked in solemn procession from St. Paul's to Westminster Abbey, to offer thanksgiving for the victory, and, having made a rich offering at the shrine of St. Edward, they all returned in triumph to the city, amidst the acclamations of the people. Whosoever might exult in the national triumph of Agincourt, Joanna had little cause for joy. The husband of her eldest daughter, the gallant Duke of Alençon, who clove King Henry's jeweled coronal from his battle axe in the melee, was there slain. Her brother, Charles of Navarre, the constable of France, died of his wounds the following day, and Arthur, her young gallant son, was a captive. No trifling tax must the widow queen have paid for greatness, when, instead of putting on her mourning weeds, and indulging in the natural grief of a fond mother's heart, for these family calamities, she was called upon to assume the glittering trappings of state, and to take the leading part in a public pageant of rejoicing. Till this latter duty was performed, as befitted the Queen of England, she forbore to weep, and to make lamentations for the dead, or to bewail the captivity of him, who was led a prisoner in the train of the royal victor. The trials of Joanna only commenced with the Battle of Agincourt, for she had to endure much maternal anxiety as to the future position of her eldest son, the reigning Duke of Bretagne, with whose temporizing conduct Henry V was greatly exasperated, and she had to perform the hard task of welcoming, with deceitful smiles and congratulations, the haughty victor, who had wrought her house with such woe, and who was the arbiter of her son Arthur's fate. Arthur of Bretagne, as Earl of Richmond, was Henry's subject, 
and, by bearing arms against him at Agincourt, had violated his liegeman's oath, and stood in a very different position from his royal step-brother, from the other prisoners. Well was it for him, considering the vindictive temper of Henry V, that the queen had in former times laid that prince under obligations, by assisting him, in time of need, with pecuniary aid. The first interview between Joanna and her captive son is, perhaps, one of the most touching passages in history. They had not seen each other since 1404, when Arthur, as a boy, visited the court of England, to receive the investiture of the earldom of Richmond, from his royal stepfather, Henry IV, twelve years before. Joanna, anxious to ascertain whether he retained any remembrance of her person, which, perhaps, she felt was fated by years of anxious tendance on a husband sick alike in body and mind, yet fondly hoping that maternal instinct would lead him to his mother's arms, placed one of her ladies in her chair of state, and retired among her attendants, two of whom stood before her, while she watched what would follow. Arthur, as might be expected, took the queen's representative for his mother. She supported the character for some time, and desired him to pay his compliments to her ladies. When, in turn, he came to Joanna, her heart betrayed her, and she exclaimed, Unhappy son, do you not know me? The call of nature was felt. Both mother and son burst into tears. They then embraced with great tenderness, and she gave him a thousand nobles, which the princely youth distributed among his fellow prisoners, and his guards, together with some apparel. But after this interview, Henry V prevented all communication between the mother and her son. Arthur was doomed to waste the flower of his youth in a rigorous confinement, first in the Tower of London, and afterwards in Fotheringay Castle, Henry V being too much exasperated against him to listen to Joanna's intercessions, either for his release or ransom. Henry, however, continued to treat his royal stepmother with great respect. At the Feast of St. George, 1416, Queen Joanna, who was a lady of the Garter, with the king's aunts, the queens of Spain and Portugal, his sisters, the Queen of Denmark and Duchess of Holland, received each eight ells of blue-colored cloth, with two furs made of three hundred bellies of miniver, and one hundred and seventy garter stripes, to correspond, to make them robes, furred and embroidered with the military order of the garter, all alike, as the gift of the king. Henry, on this occasion, presented cloth and fur to a chosen number of the great ladies of the court, as well as to the princes of the blood royal, and to the knights of the garter, that they might all appear in the robes of their order, to grace the high festival of that year. Henry was induced to conclude a truce with the Duke of Bretagne, as he himself specifies, at the prayer of Joanna, whom he styles, that excellent and most dear lady, the queen, our mother. This was in the year 1417. King Henry directed his collectors of the Port of London to allow three sealed cases of money, sixty pipes of wine, seven baskets of lamps, two bales of cloth of jocelyn, and a barrel of anchovies, coming to his dearest mother, Joanna, Queen of England, at her need, in the ship called the St. Nicholas of Nantes, to pass in July 1418, without collecting any impost or due. The same day, he directs the authorities of the ports of Plymouth and Dartmouth 
to admit, free of all duty, Johan de Moyne, from the ports of Bretagne, with eight great barrels of wine of Tyre and Malmsey, for his dearest mother, Joanna, Queen of England, from her son, the Duke of Bretagne. The year following, Joanna was arrested at her dower palace of Havering Bower, by the order of the Duke of Bedford, the Regent of England. These are Walsingham, a contemporary historian's words. The king's stepmother, Queen Joanne, being accused by certain persons of an act of witchcraft, which would have tended to the king's harm, was committed, all her attendants being removed, to the custody of Sir John Pelham, who, having furnished her with nine servants, placed her in Pevensey Castle, there to be kept under his control. Joanna's principal accuser was her confessor, John Randolph, a Minorite friar, though it seems Henry had had previous information that the Queen Dowager, with the aid of two domestic sorcerers, Roger Colas of Salisbury, and Patronal Brocart, was dealing with the powers of darkness for his destruction. John Randolph was arrested at the Isle of Guernsey, and sent over to the king in Normandy, where his confessions seemed to have determined Henry to proceedings of the utmost rigor against his royal mother-in-law, who was, as we have said, forthwith arrested with the suspected members of her household, and committed as a close prisoner, first to the castle of Leeds, one of her own palaces, and afterwards to that of Pevensey. She was, by Henry's order, deprived not only of her rich dower lands and tenements, but of all her money, furniture, and personal property, even to her wearing apparel. Her servants were dismissed, and others placed about her by the authority of her jailer, Sir John Pelham. These circumstances are all set forth in the following extract from the parliamentary rolls for 7th Henry V. Be it remembered that, upon information given to the king, our sovereign lord, as well as by the relation and confession of one friar John Randolph, of the order of friars minors, as by other credible evidences, that Joanne, queen of England, had compassed and imagined the death and destruction of our said lord the king, in the most high and horrible manner that could be devised the which compassing imagination and destruction having been openly published throughout all england so it is by the counsel of the lord the king advised assented and ordained that amongst other things all the goods and chattels of the said queen and also all the goods and chattels of roger colas of salisbury and of petronel brocart lately residing with the said queen who are notoriously suspected of the said treason in whose hands soever they may be, which the said queen had, or the said other persons before named, on this twenty-seventh day of September last past and since, and also all the issues, rents, etc., of all the castles, manors, etc., which the said queen held in dower and otherwise, should be received and kept by the treasurer of England, or his deputy for the time being, who should have the custody of the said goods and chattels, etc., and that letters patent should be passed under the great seal in that behalf, and that the said treasurer or his deputy should provide for the support of the said queen and the servants assigned to her, honestly, according to the advice of the council, openly read in this parliament. And because it was doubted whether persons bound to pay rents, etc., to the queen could be surely discharged, it is ordained in this present parliament, at the request of the commons assembled, 
all such persons, upon payment to the treasurer, should be protected against the said queen in all time to come. In the issue roll for the same year is the following entry. 27th November. To Sir John Pelham, Knight, appointed by the king and council for the governance and safe custody of Joan, Queen of England, in money paid to him by the hands of Richard Laverer, her esquire, in advance, for the support and safe custody of the queen aforesaid, 1,666 pounds, 13 shillings, 4 pence. Master Peter de Offball was appointed the said queen's physician. White Kennet asserts that Joanna was brought to trial, that she was convicted and forfeited her goods by sentence of Parliament, but of this there is not the slightest proof. On the contrary, it is quite certain that she was never allowed an opportunity of justifying herself from the dark allegations that were brought against her. She was condemned unheard, despoiled of her property, and consigned to years of solitary confinement, without the slightest regard to law or justice. Her perfidious confessor, Randolph, while disputing with the parson of St. Peter's Advincula, was forever silenced by the combative priest strangling him in the midst of his debate. The fury with which the argument was pursued and its murderous termination would suggest the idea that the guilt or innocence of their royal mistress must have been the subject of discussion. Be this as it may, the death of Randolph, under these circumstances, leaves undetailed the high and horrible means whereby the royal widow was accused of practicing against the life of the king. He was the only witness against her, and by his death, the whole affair remains among the most inscrutable historical mysteries. There is, however, among the unpublished papers of Reimer, a document which seems to throw some light on the affair, by evidencing the previous attempts of Henry V, to extort from Joanna the principal part of her dower in loans. For, we find some time before her arrest and disgrace, that in the beginning of the year, he enjoins, his dear chevalier, William Kinwolmersh, to send all the sums of money he can possibly borrow, of the dower of Joanne, the queen, late wife of our sovereign lord and sire, the late king, whom God assoil. Let these sums be sent from time to time without fail, leaving her only money enough for her reasonable expenses, and to pay any annuities she may have granted. In all probability, Joanna's resistance of this oppression was answered by her arrest, on the frivolous accusation which afforded the king a pretense for replenishing his exhausted coffers at her expense. Joanna did not enjoy the solace of her young and gallant son Arthur's company in her captivity. Their doleful years of durance were wasted in separate prison houses. The return of the royal victor of Avoncourt, with his beautiful and illustrious bride, brought no amelioration to the condition of the unfortunate Queen Dowager and her son. Catherine of Valois was nearly related in blood to Joanna of Navarre, being the daughter of her cousin German, Charles the Sixth. Catherine was also sister to the young Duchess of Bretagne, Joanna's daughter-in-law, yet she received neither sympathy nor attention from her, but had the mortification of knowing that her dower, or at least the larger part of it, was appropriated to maintain Catherine's state as Queen of England. Henry V likewise presented the abbess of Sion with a thousand marks from the revenues of the imprisoned queen. 
we find in the acts of the privy council that henry returned a favorable answer to the petition of william pomeroy one of joanna's esquires who humbly supplicates for a continuance of a pension of twenty marks a year which had formerly been granted by the queen joanne in reward of his long and faithful services to her henry with his own hand has written we wool that he had the twenty marks in the fourth year of her captivity an important prisoner of state was consigned to the same fortress in which the queen dowager was incarcerated this was sir john mortimer the uncle of the Earl of March. His frequent attempts to escape from the tower caused him to be removed to the gloomy fortress of Pevensey. The widow of Henry the Fourth, being confined within the same dark walls with this fettered lion of the rival house of Mortimer, is a curious and romantic circumstance. Yet when Mortimer arrived at Pevensey, the period of Joanna's incarceration there was drawing to a close. Her royal persecutor, the puissant conqueror of France, feeling the awful moment was at hand when he must lay his scepter in the dust, and render up an account of the manner in which he had exercised his regal power, was seized with late remorse for the wrong and robbery of which he had been guilty towards his father's widow, and, knowing that repentance without restitution is of little avail in a case of conscience, he addressed the following injunction to the bishops and lords of his council, dated July 13, 1422. Right worshipful fathers and God, our right trusty and well-beloved, howbeit we have taken into our hand, till a certain time, and for such causes as ye know, the dowers of our mother, Queen Joanne, except a certain pension thereof yearly, which we assign for the expense reasonable of her, and of a certain many that should be about her. We, doubting lest it should be a charge unto our conscience, for to occupy forth longer the said dower in this wise, the which charge we be advised no longer to bear on our conscience, will and charge you, as ye will appear before God for us in this case, and stand discharged in your conscience also, that ye make deliverance unto our said mother the queen, holy of her said dower, and suffer her to receive it as she did heretofore, and that she make her officers whom she list, so they be our liegemen and good men, and that therefore we have given in charge and commandment at this time to make her full restitution of her dower above said. Furthermore, we will and charge you that her beds and all other things movable that we had of her, ye deliver her again and ordain her that she have of such cloth and of such color, as she will devise herself five or six gowns, such as she useth to wear. And because we suppose she will soon remove from the place where she is now, that ye ordain her horses for eleven chars, and let her remove them into whatsoever place within our realm, that her list and when her list, etc. Written the thirteenth day of July, the year of our reign, tenth. In common justice, Henry ought to have made this amende perfect, by adding a declaration of his royal stepmother's innocence, from the foul charge which had been the ostensible pretext for the persecution to which she had been subjected. His letter contains in effect, however, if not the words, a complete exoneration of Queen Joanna, and it appears unaccountable that any apologist should be found to justify the conqueror of Agincourt, for acts which were so sore a burden to his departing spirit, and which he himself confesses, in this memorable letter, 
that he had been advised no longer to bear on his conscience, lest he should rue it hereafter. The spoliation of the queen dowager had extended, we find, even to the sequestration of her beds and rich array. She had certainly been compelled to divest herself of her queenly attire, and to assume the coarse garb of penance. Whether the peace offering of five or six new gowns, with the royal permission for the injured lady to consult her own taste in the color, material, and fashion of the same, was considered by Joanna as a sufficient compensation for the wrong and robbery and weary imprisonment she had undergone, is doubtful. But, be this as it might, and even if the gowns, which the warlike majesty of England so solemnly enjoins his chancellor, and the other lords spiritual and temporal of his council, to endow her with, were promptly rendered, it is certain she could not have enjoyed the satisfaction of appearing in them, courtly etiquette compelling her, within seven weeks after the date of Henry's letter of restitution, to assume the mockery of mourning weeds for his decease. This event occurred August 31st, 1422. But it appears that some amelioration had previously taken place in regard to Joanna's captivity. For, by a contemporary document, it is evident that she had been removed to Leeds Castle the same summer, as the following entries appear in her household book dated July 14, the first year of Henry the Sixth. It is to be observed that first the Duke of Gloucester, and then Cardinal Beaufort visited her, just before the formal official notice of Henry's penitence, and assuredly brought her private intelligence of the change in her favor. For, on June the 12th, is an item, that the Duke dined with her at Leeds, and went away after dinner, expenses for the feast, four pounds two shillings, and, on the second of the next month, Cardinal Beaufort dined with her at a cost of four pounds, fourteen shillings, two pence. Her oblations and alms, at the cross of the chapel within Leeds Castle, came to six shillings, eight pence, but she laid in a stock of Gasson, Claret, Rochelle, and Rhenish wines, at the cost of fifty-six pounds, zero shillings, four pence. Her alms seemed influenced by her usual avarice, for if she could find money to buy so much wine, she might have commemorated her signal deliverance from captivity and obloquy by a larger outlay than a mark. All her recorded donations appeared despicably mean. Indeed, this precious historical document singularly confirms our estimate of her character. The grasping avarice was the chief source of her misfortunes. Her clerk, Thomas Lilbourne proceeds to note the expenses of her mourning dress for the death of her persecutor, as well as for her own person as the maids of her chamber. There are some odd notices of the price of making court dresses, which may be amusing to the ladies of the present day. There are charges for seven yards of black cloth, for a gown for the queen at the feast of Easter, at seven shillings eight pence per yard, and for making a gown for her, one shilling six pence for one cape of black, for black silk loops, and for four hundred clasps, possibly hooks and eyes, for seven and a half yards of black cloth, at seven shillings per yard, for the queen's person, for making a cape for the queen, and for black satin, and for gray squirrel fur, twenty-three shillings four pence, for fur to make a collar and mantle for the queen, twenty shillings, for one ounce of black thread, one shilling six pence, three dozen shoes, at sixpence per pair. Likewise to Agnes Stowe, of the family of Lady Margaret Trumpington, 
for her good services to the queen as a gift six shillings eight pence to two sergeants at law to plead for the queen's gold six shillings eight pence to nicholas minstrel a gift of the queen six shillings eight pence none of joanna's gifts exceeded this sum which is the amount of a mark some of the articles are curious as one pot of green ginger nine shillings six pence for rose water seven shillings six pence to master lawrence for cinnamon seven shillings ten pence the queen gives six pence per pair for her maid's shoes and seven pence for those of her own wearing notwithstanding the earnest desire of henry v for the restoration of joanna's dower the matter was attended with great difficulty on account of the manner in which he had disposed of this property he had in fact sold mortgaged and granted it away to a variety of persons besides endowing his own queen now also a queen dowager with the town and appurtenances of hertford and many other manors which had been settled on queen joanna by his father king henry the fourth the smoothing of such a raveled skein caused much delay and trouble to all parties and we find in the second of henry the sixth that a petition was presented from the noble lady joanna queen of england requiring all the grants made by the late king henry v to be quashed by parliament that she might receive her revenues the answer to the petition was that the same should be granted in all points provided that those persons who had laid out money upon the queen's lands should have the option of taking the same under her at the same term or rent at which they then held them from the crown joanna of navarre survived her restoration to liberty wealth and royal station many years living says weaver in all princely prosperity her grandson giles of bretagne was reared and educated with the youthful king henry the sixth and was much beloved by him a circumstance which leads to the conclusion that queen joanna was likewise in favor at the english court her favorite residence was the sylvan retreat of havering bower she also kept her state sometimes at langley where her retirement was enlivened occasionally by shows as the rude theatrical entertainments of the fifteenth century were designated we learn from a contemporary chronicle that in the ninth year of henry the sixth a grievous and terrible fire took place at the manor of the lady queen joanna at langley in which there was great destruction of the buildings furniture gold and silver plate and household stuff these disasters happen through the want of care and drowsiness of a player and the heedless keeping of a candle this fire is the last event of any importance that befell the royal widow after her restoration to her rights joanna was treated with all proper consideration by the grandson of her deceased consort the young king henry the sixth while residing at her palace of langley fourteen thirty seven she was honored with a new year's gift from this amiable prince as a token of his respect this is a tablet of gold garnished with four ballast rubies eight pearls and in the midst a great sapphire the tablet had been formally presented to the young king by my lady gloucester whether by jacqueline or eleanora cobham is left doubtful in the july following joanna died at havering bower this event is thus quaintly noted by the chronicle of london a contemporary record this same year ninth of july died queen jane king henry the fourth's wife 
also the same year died all the lions in the tower the which was not seen in no man's time before out of mind joanna was certainly turned of seventy at the time of her death which occurred in the fifteenth year of henry the sixth fourteen thirty seven she survived her first husband john duke of bretagne nearly thirty-eight years and her second henry the fourth of england twenty-four she had nine children by the duke of bretagne joanna who died in infancy john who succeeded his father and died in fourteen forty two marie duchess of alenon who died in fourteen forty six blanche countess of armagnac and margaret viscountess rohan both of whom died in the flower of youth supposed to have been poisoned arthur earl of richmond so long a captive in england who afterwards became illustrious in french history as the valiant count de richemont jules the third son of joanna died in england fourteen twelve richard count of stamps died the year after his mother the queen had no children by henry the fourth the following summonses were issued by henry the sixth to the nobles male and female to do honor to the funeral of this queen trusty and well-beloved cousin know as much as we by the name of our leal uncle of gloucester and other of our council have appointed the funerals of our grandmother queen joanna whom god assoil to be holden and solemnized at canterbury the sixth day of august next coming believe that we have appointed the said uncle and other lords and ladies of our realm and you cousin blank for the name to be ready for the same day to the worship of god and our said grandmother we desire therefore and pray you putting off your pleasure and excusation ceasing dispose you to be in person at the solemnity of the said funeral according to our singular trust in ye given under our privy seal at oxford the twenty-third day of july adding to this document is the following to be at canterbury at queen joanna's interment my lord of gloucester my lady of gloucester the earl of huntingdon of northumberland of oxford lord poynings the duchess of norfolk the younger countess of huntingdon of northumberland of oxford the archbishop of canterbury the bishop of norwich the bishop of winchester the prior of christchurch at canterbury the abbot of st augustine's there and the abbot of battle the corpse of queen joanna rested at bermondsey abbey on its way to the canterbury cathedral where she was interred in the same vault which her pious care had provided as the domus ultima of her royal consort henry the fourth the superb altar tomb had been prepared under her auspices for that monarch and there their effigies reposed side by side in solemn state near the tomb of the black prince joanna's statue like her portrait in the picture of her coronation gives us the idea of a very lovely woman her throat long and delicate slender but rounded arms her bust beautiful her features are small and regular with an expression of finesse the eyes and eyebrows very long her head is singularly high and at the same time very broad from the eyebrows upwards the whole gives the idea of an exact portrait the tomb is wrought in alabaster enameled with colors the dress is elegant her beautiful arms are naked being only shaded behind by the royal mantle fastened to the back of her coat hardie by a jeweled band which passes round the corsage and rich brooches clasp the mantle on the shoulders her bosom and shoulders are much shown 
Round her throat is a collar of SS, very elegant, and the oldest specimen extant of this ornament. Studs, set with jewels, are placed down the front of the cotehardie, which is a tight jacket trimmed with ermine, without sleeves. Round her hips is a band of jewels, as a belt, from which her gown falls in full folds over her feet. Joanna's device, in ermine collared and chained, is represented with her motto, Temperance, on the cornice and canopy of her tomb. Her arms may be seen by the curious in that valuable and beautiful publication, Regal Heraldry, by Mr. Willamette. They were formerly in the windows of Christchurch, near Newgate. The tomb of King Henry and Queen Joanna is near the site once occupied by the shrine of Thomas a Becket, Henry having expressed a superstitious wish that his mortal remains should repose under the especial protection of this far-famed saint. But yet, though all was carved so fair, and priest for Marmion breathed the prayer, the last Lord Marmion rest not here. May those say, with regard to the sepulchre of Henry the Fourth, who are disposed to credit the statement of a contemporary, though certainly not unprejudiced chronicler, subjoined. The testimony of Clement Maidenstone, translated from a Latin manuscript, in the library of Bennett College, Cambridge, 1440. Thirty days after the death of Henry the Fourth, September 14, 1412, one of his domestics came to the house of the Holy Trinity at Hounslow, and dined there and as the bystanders were talking at dinner-time of the king's irreproachable morals, this man said to a certain esquire, named Thomas Maidenstone, then sitting at table, Whether he was a good man or not, God knows, but this I am certain, that when his corpse was carried from Westminster towards Canterbury, by water, in a small vessel, in order to be buried there, I and two more threw his corpse into the sea between Birkingham and Gravesend. For, he added with an oath, we were overtaken by such a storm of winds and waves, that many of the nobility who followed us in eight ships were dispersed, so as with much difficulty to escape being lost. But we, who were with the body, despairing of our lives, with one consent threw it into the sea, and a great calm ensued. The coffin in which it lay, covered with a cloth of gold, we carried, with great solemnity, to Canterbury, and buried it. The monks of Canterbury therefore say, that the tomb, not the body of Henry the Fourth, is with us. As Peter said of holy David, As God Almighty is my witness and judge, I saw this man, and heard him speak to my father, T. Maidenstone, that all the above was true. Clement Maidenstone this wild and wondrous tale, emanating as it does from a source so suspicious as Henry's sworn foes, the two maidenstones, we are disposed to regard as non vera, ma ben trovato, but it was calculated to make a powerful impression on the minds of the ignorant and superstitious, and it is probable that it was revived to the great disadvantage of Henry's widowed queen, at the time when she was branded by her royal stepsons, Henry V and Bedford, with the foul charge of witchcraft. The evil practices of Queen Joanna's deceased father, Charles Le Mauvais, the royal sorcerer and poisoner of Navarre, doubtless operated also against her, at the period to which we allude. And notwithstanding the implied exculpation of her character, in Henry V's deathbed letter of restitution, a degree of superstitious terror was long connected with her memory.
End of section 6. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.